one thing that a mentor of mine said early on was that Temujin was just a side little sort of silly project I was doing with my friends and that I'd have to grow up soon and figure out what my actual career is going to look like. Have you ever been told you should get a more sensible career? On this show, we speak with creators and artists in Asia who ignored that advice to find success in their creative field. We'll learn how they paved their own path, dealt with roadblocks and challenges, and gained hard-earned lessons on their way to building a unique and singular foolish career. I'm your host, Timmy Sitanko. Temujin is a limited series audio drama about the rise of Genghis Khan. It's built a fan base in the audio storytelling world and was a finalist at this year's Webby Awards where it competed against entries from Trevor Noah, HBO, and the BBC. Spoiler alert, they lost to Trevor Noah. But they came in second and have since set up Andes Productions to create more narrative stories. In this interview, they reflect on the Webby's experience and how they're navigating the industry as young producers. Back in college, which was really only a few years ago, but seems a lifetime in the past. Temujin was an ambitious thesis project that Roshan struggled to get off the ground. He got the idea from one of his classmates, who was from Mongolia. Please tell me about your best friend, Amarbold Lagvasarin. I hope I pronounced that right. It's something like Lagvasarin. He, he has asked me not to try to pronounce it. Isabel, Amarbold, and I were all floor mates in our residential dorm. We were all basically living together. And with Amarbold, it turned out that we had watched all the same shows. We followed the same YouTube channels, long-form dramas, animes, books. Russian novels. We had read all the same stuff. And then there's this one moment where we were taking a bus to a nearby mall and he said, isn't it weird that there are no camels on the road? And I'm like, oh yeah! We're actually from very different backgrounds. They have a farm in eastern Mongolia and they entertain guests and they know where all the interesting stuff is outside of the capital. And that's not very accessible to tourists. But at the same time, there's so much historical significance out there in places where there are not even roads. So what his parents offered to do is basically this dirt road road trip where we would go to like three of the places where Genghis Khan is suspected to have been born. Mm. And we traveled to each one and just examined the terrain, the geography. How are they the same? How are they different? You had these long travels where we'd have to plan a route, really think seriously about like where we're going to get our food for the day. And for me, personally, as a Singaporean, it's not mm. a frame of mind that you're often in. And that was a really useful thing for that trip. Exposing ourselves to a different perspective and understanding that if we were going to write a story like this, it's important at least to have tried to bridge that empathy gap, how that must have felt. Temujin went through a pretty long writing process. And as I understand it, the initial intention was to make it a straight play. You had been at it for two years, and then you got sick, but but you didn't want to let your team down, obviously. And so that's how this idea of a live performed reading came about. From 2016 to 2018, I was basically writing the script. And that was a combination of solo writing, the research with Amarpold. We had table reads with actors to hear it out. One thing that I was very keen on was every time an act of the play was finished, I wanted to hear it read aloud by people. And this is where some of the casting started happening. A lot of people on our team were first-time actors. For instance, Scott Chua, he plays three characters. Like, he had never acted before. He was actually there for those table reads as a writer that I admire very much. He just had so much fun at the reads that we realized that it would be a shame to cast anybody else 
to do these delightful performances that he was putting in. 2018, I graduated. Mm -hmm. The script was done. And it was at that point where I thought that, okay, I don't know what's coming next for employment. I was open to the idea that I might be a teacher or that might be my full-time job. But I thought, okay, finish Temujin. Release it somehow. Get it out there. And then think about what comes next. And if that creates an arts career, great. If it doesn't, that's also fine. At least we saw it through. And so at some point, Isabel, you say, how are you going to market this? Yeah, it was around that time when Roshan was like, I'm going to put it out in the world rather than just have it printed in our school printer and done as a thesis and it gets shelved in the archives. So I was just going through what I knew. Have you thought about this demographic, that demographic? Have you thought about setting up these channels? You'll definitely want to have updates at these different stages. Maybe you can run this sort of a campaign. And there was a lull and he said, do you want to do marketing for Temujin? <laughs> and I was just like, sign me up. <laughs> yeah, it was just perfect. There was the prospect of putting a really special production together. And I was just like, whatever you need, I'm here. I couldn't pass it up at that point. You mentioned demographics and who should you try and reach. Can you talk a bit about that? One of our angles was people who are interested in history people who were interested in indie storytelling, people who were into podcasts. In Kickstarter campaigns, it starts with a high because you get a bunch of people to chip in. Then there's always going to be a bit of a lull where you don't have the excitement of the beginning, but you don't have the urgency of the end. So we were here at the middle and we didn't want to just not have that urgency. You were trying to raise $10,000, right? Yeah, mm. it was no small feat. What what are we going to do to keep this going? Um, one of them was always the countdown, but the other was just going back to the story and saying, never mind this being a story about Chinggis Khan or never mind about this being an Asian story. What makes this a good story? And what is the central drama. Of course, you do have to have your base audiences, but that's how you find resonance across those core audiences and beyond. Your initial audiences can get you so far, but how do you expand is really just finding that point of connection first and putting that story front and center. And around that time, we got some support with Facebook marketing. We had put ads targeted at Mongolia, actually. We had a marketing exec who was from Mongolia and said that everyone's super active on Facebook back home. So when we pushed it out, it was just floods of interaction in the hundreds and thousands. I think one part of it is seeing your story being celebrated in that way. But if we can show that it's not just your story, but it's this great story about rivalry, brotherhood that we can all relate to in some way, it helps things sink. With this Kickstarter group, once you then were able to launch Temujin itself, were they also the ones who became your first word of mouth fans? As soon as it launched... They were the first to know a lot of them had followed our Facebook page and were tracking it on Instagram as well. Just before launch, one of the most important things was that we posted on Reddit. Which subreddit? Audio drama, I believe, Roshan. Is that right? Okay. Mm -hmm. That's right. Audio yeah, drama. That's right. Passionate community. So we posted it there. And I think that's where most of the following started really what ended up happening was we got some people being like wow this is super cool and we had always had a twitter didn't know what to do with it revisited it 
a few months after and realized people were tagging us and we didn't even know it. And they would be like, this show is amazing. You've got to go listen. So there was like a Reddit, Twitter kind of flywheel going yeah. on while you were sleeping and working, basically. Kind of, yeah. And we would get the notifications, but I don't think we realized how much it was until we just checked it one day and we were like, Oh my god it's been months and they're still talking about us and so we were like you know what the the community is here let's engage let's hear what they have to say let's talk to them as well because what we found with the ecosystem of podcast creators is that so many of them are on twitter singapore hasn't had a super high twitter pickup rate but I would say almost everywhere else in the world, even as close as Malaysia, that's really where creators are sharing what they're doing, connecting with people. And I find even the most successful Singaporean creators that we know are booming on Twitter as well. When award circuits are happening, that's where people are posting about things as well. While it is technically true in the Wild West of digital media that anyone can listen from anywhere, the fact of the matter is that most of us in Singapore are listening to your top 40 America podcasts and stories. And yeah. I think yeah. it's been an exciting challenge to ask, why not? Why not have the Americans all listen to stuff that is incidentally made in Singapore. What is technically <laughs> stopping that? And I think the naive faith that we have underpinning everything we've done is that if our shows are good enough, they're accessible, they're approachable, the audience will come. One interesting thing about our statistics is that by demographics, 50% of our listeners come from the States, about 18% okay. come from Singapore. And when we talk about marketing and target audience, we've given up on the idea of targeting our shows by geographic oh we want to reach the americans or we want this one to hit with the locals because it's so much pardon my language a crapshoot and there's that well-known miserable truth that to make it big here you have to make it big there and it is true right it, it took webby recognition to get singapore recognition maybe it's just personal heritage pride but i will give the philippines credit because as soon as you say that you've done something cool they're like Oh my goodness! Yeah. Scott is on the team and Bettina and we're the three Filipinos. I never grew up in the Philippines so my connection is not as well embedded as them who had uh, grown up there all their lives. And when those two posted, their network just blasted. The Philippines was one of our biggest voting demographics. We had gotten a feature on the <laughs> Philippine Inquirer. I think the real lesson that we learned is that we had pretty geographically conventional ways of thinking this was going to grow. The idea is that you start at home and then you go outside. When we can so easily connect with people who are so far away, why start close when you can start as far as the ocean will take you, really? You don't need mm. the ocean anymore. You just need Wi-Fi. Yeah. It really changed for us what the idea of success could be. Success being getting the show out there. Temujin is a show that we mixed and edited in a college dormitory for most of it. We uh, rehearsed it in classrooms. Why shouldn't it have the kind of reach and success that anything made in America can? And mm -hmm. there is no good reason why it can't. And I think, I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this, my profession is I'm a TV screenwriter as well. It's this wonderful thing where I've been able to 
compare the workings of uh, theater in Singapore with the international TV screenwriting industry, with podcasting and audio fiction. And with TV, one thing that I've noticed is that there's a sense of defeatism in the other local screenwriters that I've talked to. Not an unwarranted defeatism, mind you. There's a kind of wariness. I've been in rooms at, at like, talks surrounded by like other screenwriters. One person started yelling at the guest speaker. What's the point when everything's so neo-colonial? And, and the speaker was stunned, and then someone else from the front row turned around back to that guy and went, you just have a bad attitude, man. And he's, what? And then, and then you know, they, they, they... And these are all local screenwriters. And these, not just local screenwriters, but there were people from HBO in that room. I believe there was a Netflix person at that room. And it was just chaos. And I'm like, oh my God, this is the same discussions that we used to have in university about, is it pointless to try to make a successful... Southeast Asian show when the ratings are dominated by and then then I'm like oh my god these 40 to 50 year olds who are veterans Mm. are having the same arguments that we are it was nice knowing that there wasn't really a correct answer and the moment you realize (laughs) that everyone's just in this giant mosh pit trying to figure out what works the best thing we realized we could do is have a positive attitude and then obviously the counter to that is we've had a lot of people telling us that it's naive to think that you stand a chance or it's all rigged what about for people who are in the industry? Do you get warnings that you're young and naive and you should burst your bubble soon? All the time. There's a lot of gatekeeping. But the thing is, mm-hmm. that part of the joy of audio is nobody can tell you, no, don't do it. No, don't make it. No one can say that. If we have the resources to make it and we believe in it, we can just make it. One thing that a mentor of mine said early on was that Temujin was just a side little sort of silly project I was doing with my friends and that I'd have to grow up soon and figure out what my actual career is going to look like. Temujin has been rejected from almost every theater company in Singapore. There was a while where I was trying to pursue it as a play, but there was no interest. I had a long discussion with the head of a major theater company who who basically said that he felt nothing listening to the whole thing. He said it was a, a hollow script with no room for emotion or sentiment or genuine feeling. He said that it was full of holes. He said, what would people from Mongolia think of this if my friend's family is ashamed of it? And I I was really caught off guard, and I found myself apologizing a lot and just saying, I'm so sorry, I I thought we were doing something respectful, here are all the things I tried to do. And there was a point for a few months after that where I was, did did I write something really bad? Mm. Well, there's a decision you have to make at an early stage, like the separation between good faith and bad faith comments. Were those comments made in good faith? I think that person was coming from a place where he fundamentally disagreed with my creative direction. And one thing I want to point out is I'm a teacher as well. And I think one thing that I've had to learn is how to recognize what my students' creative directions are, how those might not align with my own, but then asking once they Mm. know their direction, what can I do to help them push it that way? Whereas one dangerous thing that I've personally encountered a lot in Singapore are people who, so they have a very clear sense of direction for themselves. But then when you study under them, they say every other way is wrong. One way I heard it described is that art is like religion, where all the religious groups come together and they play nice, but they return to their houses, did certain that they're in the right and everyone else is wrong. And I, I really didn't like that. I really didn't like that way of looking at it because taste isn't singular. Right? I think craft might be singular. So, I, so this whole thing, distinguishing between taste and craft. Taste is the sort of thing you like. Craft is how well you're able to execute your direction. And you can teach craft, but you're making the world a less beautiful place when you try to teach other people what their taste ought to be. 
And I think it, it makes you fall out of sync with the audience, the mass audience. And that's the audience we're trying to reach. We decided yeah. to push it because we had this faith that if it meant something to us, then it'll mean something to someone else. Even if all these experienced people were telling us that it, it was hollow and meaningless. That's coming from a place where they're seeing a direction that's not their own instead of seeing something that was made poorly. And that was a gamble we took. Let's go to a happier memory. Yeah. Tell me about the day or night or whatever time it was then you pressed upload and Temujin was in the world. Was it anticlimactic? It was climactic. <laughs> it was very climactic. It was, <laughs> it was, I think, functionally, it had to be climatic because it was my campaign, so I needed it to be exciting. We had used Anchor, so we were tracking how many people were watching it. And what were our numbers in the beginning? How can we keep this going or keep it pushing for the next couple of weeks? Because we were doing on weekly releases. One of the things you can do on Anchor in the back end is see where your viewers are listening in. It was all just all over the place. We were just like, what? You're listening from there? On day one, you get America... You get a bit of Singapore, you get a bit of Mongolia, probably the UK, India. How did that map grow? I'm going to show you the graph, mm. how listenership changed. Okay, so this is our lifetime listenership. This first thing here was launch. So with launch, which happened in January. That's January right. 2020. This is basically everybody who had crowdfunded us like our friends, and that contributed to a bump. But there's a question of discovery, right? Which is how do new people find out about the podcast? And word of mouth, clearly, we, we were struggling a bit here. This is February-ish. And then we move forward by a factor of two weeks. Okay. And every two weeks. And then around here, oh. August, September, what happens is we had an interview release by the people at Radio Drama Revival. And they're probably the most prominent audio fiction review for independent audio fiction. and They just found you. Yeah, so it turned out the host of that program was a huge fan. And she was starting a new season of the show. She reached out via our Twitter. And then we realized, oh, shoot, Twitter is important, isn't it? So around here, you can actually <laughs> see this is the point where we realized uh, we should get on. And this is the interview. But this leading up to the okay. interview was us getting Twitter engagement. And there's a little bit of a peak here. This is awards season-ish. Uh -huh. Yeah. where there was the Audioverse Awards, uh, Audio UK, so there was the uh, Audio Production Awards. You also got the Bello Collective shout-out, right? That's yes. right. That's very cool. It's super, super cool. All of that happened around <laughs> here-ish. Mm. And this spike over here, so today, this is the most listeners we've ever had in a two-week span. That was actually mm -hmm. just last month. And I'm assuming that's the Webby's bump. That's right. Okay. So the lifespan of a show is really surprising, right? Because what happens is you don't know there's going to be a this part. So when we were living through it, all we saw is the natural life cycle of a show as a thing you expect to be like this. The trough of despair. Yeah. And then you come for this. And then we think again, okay, we're probably done. And then <laughs> we have that most listeners we've ever had. So I think this has been a really heartening testament to our initial philosophy, which is that if you make something which is mm -hmm. good and readily available, then you're offering up something which can go viral at any point. I found myself trying to think of what's the sort of thing that's valuable about these peaks and valleys and what happened at each we were always continuously engaging with the community what was common about each of those three peaks was that we were always putting ourselves out there and because we had faith that we had crafted something good 
part of the success of this was having that confidence. And so when you shuffle it around to different awards or tell different people to go and listen to it, it's because you've like done something that you can put your stamp on it. But having that confidence also to really share it because this stuff is meant to be shared. Why put it on podcasting if you don't want to share it? As creators growing up, we were told that if you put good work out there, the audience will come. But there is also the twiddling of your thumbs and being like, when will Senpai notice me? And sometimes you must make senpai notice you because there's so much things to look at. And out of modesty or out of insecurity, maybe early creators are scared of doing that. I guess I'm just saying this for anyone who's listening and who's like, but what if no one comes to my show? You must make people come to your show. And if you know what you've done is good, then someone will. It might be scary to do it at first, but as you can see from the peaks, it's rewarding. It's too rewarding mm. not to try. So how do the webbies work? So for the webbies, you have to submit your show. And that's part of the reason why I say that you have to be confident to put your work out there because submitting to the webbies is done by you. So we originally submitted for diversity and inclusion. And a few weeks passed by, the submissions were about to close. And we were like, fiction we have a good script yeah let, let's try it who knows there's nothing lost here in long-term consequence so why not we didn't apply for best scripted fiction originally we applied for diversity and inclusion because we thought that we wouldn't stand a chance in best scripted fiction mm. as a universal category but ironically we didn't even get it for diversity and inclusion we got it for the one that we didn't think we would get I still remember we had our co-founders huddle and I think we were looking at plans for the year coming up or two. Roshan checks his phone and he's, hey, we got the Webbies. And I was like, what? And he was like, yeah, we're nominated. I think it was 10 p.m. Okay, can we see who else got it? And we looked at it and noticed Trevor Noah's face next to our cover art. And it was just really the mother of all screenshots. It was this moment where I realized that someone on Trevor's team, presumably and hopefully maybe he himself, was going to look at this and then see this Temujin audio drama. The moment of that realization that we were being seen by people that we had admired growing up and mm. are now recognized alongside them, but that also meaning they would recognize us. I can't begin to describe the, the short-circuiting in my brain that happened in that moment and the gravity of, wow, we have to make this moment count. Yeah. Because we can either pat ourselves on the back and be like, this is wonderful, or recognize this situation for what it is, which is, we have an opportunity for all eyes to be on us and get this story to an even further audience than we could have ever hoped. We couldn't pass on the chance. And did you do anything special for this campaign? This really felt like a whiplash back to the Kickstarter campaign because of the level of intensity, what felt like the stakes and 
Then to add all of that, the voting period was two weeks. So it was very <laughs> compressed. One of the first things that we wanted to do was reach out to press because this indie Asian story from this corner of the world was being recognized among studio giants like HBO, Comedy Central, BBC, and Broadway. Yeah, we were hoping that more than just about supporting us, we wanted to make the statement that if we made this in our university dorm in Singapore and it's being recognized on the American stage, then... Imagine what else. And unfortunately, this is another sort of semi-negative bent to the story where we got told flat out by a lot of Singaporean news sources that they're just not interested in covering it. We wrote to everyone and the mm. mothership featured us. Most of the time, they didn't write back. Though there were some people who specifically told us Nobody cares. That was a bit disappointing. I think the way I'd put it is like the mainstream sort of consensus was that this was not of journalistic interest in Singapore. But the thing is, given that was the mainstream, it, it made the exceptions all the more spectacular. There was still an outpouring of support in Singapore by Singaporeans. It just generally wasn't coming from the press. It was coming from TikTok influencers. It was mm -hmm. coming from the podcast folks. It came from mm -hmm. Reddit. The media was proven wrong, I think, in terms of how many people did show up and how many people did support us. Because that was amazing. We got so much support. At some point, you were number two. We were comfortably number two. Trevor was 40%. We were about 30, 33. 34. Yeah, she was 40. I we remember there was a third. We were at... You're right. You're right. Yeah. Oh, my God. 34. There was a... Before we were the polls really, closed. We were really close. <laughs> Third place was like 10%. Two million votes were cast. Just the sheer mm. thought of tens and thousands of people voting for us is wild. We, we got in touch with the community that we had built. And the support was so forthcoming. Oh, I'm really proud of <laughs> one thing. Yeah, the Dirk Mags of it all, Isabel. Like, yeah, my, so... The, my, like, what? My personal idol. I grew up listening to his audio shows. He did Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy for the BBC. Dirk, <laughs> Dirk tweeted about us. Uh, he tweeted and made a Facebook post oh saying that God. this was a stylish show by young creators from Asia. And mm -hmm. we started talking on Facebook with Dirk Mags. And he was so supportive. He made a whole push for us and introduced so many people to our show. To have had him listen to our show and enjoy it and then make two different posts while working on Sandman Season 2 about us. Like, what an honor, right? Who needs a Webby? <laughs> exactly. What did he say? I, I have the tweet right here. Even on personal messages, he was so supportive. Okay, Dirk Temujin, he tweeted, The Webby Awards recognize talent in the online creative community. And Temujin, a stylish audio drama from young independent producers in Asia. And then he tagged me, is up against our Travel Noir's podcast. There's still hours left to vote. He didn't have to do that. Between that and like his Spider-Man, his Superman... We grew up on this guy. His mm -hmm. American Gods, his Neverwhere, his Good Omens. That felt huge. It did have repercussions for our work. How so? So through my work screenwriting, we met these people from 108 Media. On They've yeah. optioned Sunny Liu's comic books, right? Are you on that project? Yeah. I'm, oh, writing, brilliant. I'm a writer for that. Which is... And I got the Charlie Chan job because of mm. Timujin. They identified us as a young creative team in Singapore interested in history. And they're like, okay, uh, we're doing a history. I'm like, don't tell me this Charlie Chan. Don't tell me this Charlie Chan. And they're like, we're doing Charlie Chan. Like, okay, my favorite graphic <laughs> novel, no biggie. So I spent a year developing that and it, it, it's being shopped around at the moment. And they're finalizing the core creative team and 
Honestly, the names that they've floated around. For instance, one of the names that was casually like thrown around was Lulu Wang. And it's, oh, I'm just talking to Lulu right now. I'm like, do you have her number? He's like, yeah, of course I have a number. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> like, do you guys feel like, oh, I should be more cool about this because I'm in the industry now. I can't be a fangirl or fanboy anymore. <laughs> the vice president of Marvel's content creation told me to chill out. <laughs> he told uh he told me that I can't afford to be so visibly nervous the next time I talk to someone like him. And I was like, cool note. That was a kind thing to say. <laughs> it was really kind. Because I came up with a list. I wrote down like what I wanted to say to him. I came up like, this is huge. This is amazing. I'm so glad to be talking to you. He's like, okay, first chill out. <laughs> like, just calm down. <laughs> and that, that note helped a lot. It's just, it's just, how else do you learn this stuff? Other than like, you... You end up learning it by being in the position Isabel and I have been like so fortunate to be in, which is we end up meeting people we never thought we would meet. So, for instance, the person who's in charge of the Disney bootcamp, who is now at Audible, has been this amazing supporter. And between the support we've gotten from her and the people at 108 Media and talking about IPs and talking about, for instance, the prospect offhand of what if we did audio fiction around Charlie Chan? We have the license for that. It's one thing to be on the, the writing room for it. It's another to be, would our company be interested in producing it and making it? We would get to set like a creative direction. We get to build a team. We end up needing to plan for the best case scenario where it's, okay, once we've gotten over the fact that we're speaking to them at this level, what do we offer? What, what can we do? What do we in high pressure business meetings present ourselves as? Let's consolidate all this ethereal positivity and good vibes and positive work environment into something which is sustainable so that we're not just high where Isabel and Roshan is high where Andas. Is Andas the two of you? At the moment, Isabel and I are the core team. And what happens is there's a, a cast of recurring characters. Our sound guy, Nat, unfortunately can't come on full-time yet because he's on a bond. So he's ready to freelance whenever we need him. And we have this kind of thing where he always says yes as long as we give him enough runway. So there's a bunch of actors we love working with. There's a bunch of visual artists. We're working on the Charlie Chan expanded universe where we decided to take Roachman from the art of Charlie Chan and just build that universe. So we're doing a Roachman action noir 2D side-scroller, pixel art Singapore, fast-paced, Hades-inspired roguelite where you're trying to make it to the end of this fantastical version of Singapore. And every time you die, you try again a little bit stronger than before. And the idea is we take everything we learned about story, about audio, about music from Temujin, and layer in everything we learned from doing the Temujin animated and bring in a really sleek visual style. I play video games as my most, my favorite form of media. And Isabel is the same. We love video games as much as I love any audio fiction. So it doesn't feel like baby steps so much. It feels right, even if it's a totally different medium. I have an older brother who's all about video games, so I was either watching him or trying to beat him and failing miserably. So <laughs> it also just feels like taking everything we've grown up on and making our own kind of joy. It's been so nice. We spoke to a bunch of publishers. We learned how video games get published, and we had a crash course in that. Now we're spending a year working on a prototype for this game where we have like finished art, everything that you can look at and play for at least a couple of screens. And the hope is that after a year doing that and we present this to the publisher next year, we get the funding to do that for about two more years so that we release this video game in tandem with a TV show and the audio fiction, which 
Again, fingers crossed, we're hoping we can get a major audio publisher for that. We've been in talks uh, to do something exciting, but again, we have to see how these things shake out. It's such a long runway. Capital has been hard. Capital has been hard. And with Temujin, we were very confident that we were doing this to establish ourselves and to get people aware that this is a team that works well, produces good stuff, and is reliable, basically. And now we're in this really tricky stage where Isabel and I are trying to take that goodwill and the critical recognition and translate that into finances. And it's so up and down. We'll get a lead one day with someone who's interested in seed funding, for instance. And then mm. for months, we don't hear anything. And we're like, ah, did we lose that? What happened there? And it ends up 10 different things where it could be the bills. They could not materialize. If even a single one did, that would change the game for us. We've locked in that. We know that we're able to offer consultative services. So... Anyone looking to make audio fiction in Singapore, we've decided that we want to offer up help in a paid capacity to get people off the ground. We know that we love education. So one thing that I'm doing is by the creative arts program in Singapore, Netma, our sound mixer and myself will be teaching a whole bunch of secondary school kids how to make an audio drama. And that's a service that can also pay reasonably well. But the thing is that these are all disparate things that still don't immediately equate to the dream, which is that Isabel and I are full-time andasing. Every day we have exciting news. But that exciting news always stops just shy of, here's 50k seed. It always just shy of that. One thing that's non-negotiable is that our creators and people that we work with are valued for their time, compensated. So they're always part of our plan and whatever security we can provide, we do our best. What our strategy has been is producing good work producing good stories and producing things that people enjoy experiencing. Temujin is our first thing. And what we've been trying to make sure is that our next thing isn't a sophomore slump. The second thing is the moment that people either say, oh, you just got lucky or okay, 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 okay. They know what they're doing. I forget sometimes that I'm 25, Shen's like 26. I, I always go to this interview that Taika Waititi did and he started directing at age 33 and he said that people always told him to take a break and he said I'd been taking a break for 33 years. I always feel like I'd been taking a break at 20, for 25 and I'm not gonna wait but even though we have that mentality there's room to refine and polish so that what comes next is something we're proud of. Accepting the Webby's loss was a reflective thing for Isabel and I. And for the first day or so, I did feel like this migraine headache of all of that support. And we're going to have to log on to Twitter and Facebook and tell everyone, hey, it didn't work out. And I I don't know how to say that. I, I always knew that this was the likely outcome. I just felt so guilty. Why guilty? Because we were pushing this narrative. And I know that past a certain point, it's illogical. But we wanted to make this thing about hope and about how if we can do this, then maybe any of us can do this. The winning speech for the person who won was thanks to the crew or something like that. Just a very generic yeah, thanks to the team. Oh, because with the webbies, you're limited to a five-word exactly. statement. Did you think of yours? We did. We did. Are you willing to share it? We wanted to say, young Asian storytellers, there's hope. Hopefully all, all the faith, none of the hubris. There was a moment where I was like, does this mean that the hope that we were hoping to convey doesn't exist? And I had a couple of days where I was really burnt out. And I snapped out of it by reminding myself 
of exactly what Isabel said just now, which is that I'm currently 26 and idolize people much older than ourselves who A, have never won a Webby. Uh, which is 99.999% of yeah. people. <laughs> or who have even been recognized at awards for us. And the people I admire who are much older than me, I don't care <laughs> if they've won these things or if they haven't. If you have like power to you, but this is never going to define the work that we do, especially not at this age. I've been in the past two weeks negotiating for a bunch of shows and I've been learning how to send chaser emails for writing payment or contractual negotiation. This is the thing, right? Your career lives and dies in these tiny little moments of learning how to politely start difficult conversations and Mm. that's the stuff, right? It's not about can you write a pretty piece of dialogue because so many people can. We have such a long, unrelated to the Webby's road ahead of us that the Webby's is almost inconsequential. We just have to sit down and keep showing up. And if our first Webby we win when we're 40, that's still one more Webby won in your entire life. And I think it helped me take it way less seriously. You know, what I tell people all the time is that no matter what, our name is on the website forever because you can't take back anything on the internet. Yes, it. of course we would have loved to win. Of course. When we submitted, it's just, of course we would just love to be nominated. And to come from, oh, we're not even going to submit to fiction because we don't have a chance to hear. That's the leap. I watch RuPaul's Drag Race avidly and in the latest season there is this really legendary queen Tamisha Iman who's just done the rounds when she walked in the room everybody knew her but she was a bit older and she had some health conditions that made it hard for her to compete but when she was eliminated she said something and I wrote it down because I ingrain it now. She said sometimes... I wrote it. Every competition, you don't have to win. Sometimes you just have to show up. Sometimes just being there, you can make that a win already. And... Yeah. Because it is a win already. Like, this ain't nothing. They didn't just give everybody the nomination. I've been wondering a couple of things. Both of you have touched a lot on all the things you're now doing to build up Andas Productions as a company. Mm -hmm. What of those things did you learn in school and what have you had to learn on the job? I need to think about this for mm. I think that to answer that question, the default, which is to say most of it, is on the fly. Like the ninety nine percent of it is we get really scared of something we have to do, but we start doing it anyway. And every time we feel scared, we talk to somebody or we like put our hands up and we go, we have no idea what we're doing. We need to find somebody who does. So much of it has been like, if there's an upcoming scary challenge, we find somebody who's done it before. And we just go, do you have a minute to talk? So much of it they don't teach you in school. Running a Kickstarter, that they don't teach you that, that's for sure. Connecting with people on Twitter, surely they don't teach you that as well. I, and, and I, I want to make this a good moment for Yelnyas because it has, it has honestly taught me so much there is the interdisciplinariness of it all and i think anyone who's graduated from like a liberal arts system will tell you that the technical things you will learn on the fly but the things that make you resilient and adapt to any situation 
whatever those technical skill curveballs will throw at you were baked in the school experience. Quote me on that, Yale and US. It's good PR material. <laughs> You're welcome. So we ask every interview this. Passion versus talent. What has mattered more to you? And Passion. Easy. Straight Easy. Why? Both of you say passion? Yeah. Easy. Really? No. Coming question. from two talented people, that's interesting. Uh... I think the fact that you think we're talented people... It's proof that talent means nothing to me. <laughs> like, because I know for a fact, I know for a fact that when I was in school, all around me were people more talented than me, right? Like, all around me. There were better writers, there were better composers, and there were better directors everywhere I looked, I could point out in a room. I don't know why those people aren't Webby nominated right now. And I think part of it is all those people I would have pointed to aren't producing their own work right now. And like that, that really is it for me is we, I think what Isabel and I have done is like we, yeah, we've put ourselves out there. Yeah. We've worked like crazy, but like the point is, I think that we just keep showing up and we just keep, and I think what good did talent do that? Like nothing. Like I, we, there was never a point where somebody said, you guys are the best at what you do. And that's why you get these... That has never happened. Like, nobody has ever said, you guys are special. The closest that, that we've come to that is people who enjoy Temujin. But Temujin was four, hour, four, four hours... Four years of arduous, like, technical, confusing, and just, like, ultimately, it was hard work. Like, no point of it felt like, yeah, this is easy breezy. No, it was all like, wait, okay, problem, how do we solve this? Problem, how do we solve this? And really just micro, just like that and we just showed up and we solved the problems and we released the thing where did talent come in and like the people enjoy temujin and then we get all the stuff like that we're so grateful to have from it but i just cannot point to a single occasion where talent saved the day where it wasn't just like putting ourselves out there without being afraid of looking stupid i i just if there was one thing that i would push at the end of this interview to someone listening in it would be like Mm -hmm. don't be afraid of looking stupid and if there's something that you wanted to do right if you're like a storyteller with like fantasy ideas in your cupboard don't wait for a tv executive to give you the money to make it because frankly speaking tv executives follow the money and most of the tv executives mm. that i've met have been shameless about that as they should be their job is make money make as much money as possible while spending as as little as possible that's how TV works. That's how movies work. That's how publishing works. But the thing is that if you get your thing out there and it finds an audience, then those money people will be like, oh, okay, so it's not so risky to work with you. And I think if more people were just like down to a great example, One Punch Man. Actually, mm. yes, the example, One Punch okay. Man. Have you all seen the original drawings for One Punch Man? I want you to look up right now the One Punch Man original comic. Look up the art for that. One Punch Man. Yeah. It just look up the... Fast Typer. One Punch Man original <laughs> art. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Like, the most gonna, cookie cutter stuff here. I've ever seen. Yeah. Okay, so cool. That is the form in which One Punch Man got popular. The thing is, One Punch Man was made by an office salary worker who would get home at the end of each day and was committed to just, like, churning out pages 
even though he literally mm. couldn't draw. Like, he was, like, one step away from doing stick figures for this. In fact, he had done stick figure comics. Like, One Punch Man was, like, one of many comics he had done in this kind of, like, non-style. But the point is that he just did the work. And then what happened was that someone took, like, these webtoons and, like, like half as a joke, half out of, like, love, converted it into an actual manga. And let me try to remember. What's the name of the artist? Who, who did that. It was a, a really famous artist came in. Yusuke Murata approached him and said, hey, I'm a really good artist. I want to redraw every single panel in legit breathtaking style as a joke. Wow. And then that happened. And then like Studio Madhouse, who was like, you know, they're, they're up there is like some of the best animators in Japan, saw that beautiful comic and they're like, oh, we'd love to do an animation of this beautiful comic. So you, you get three steps away from salary worker putting in the hours to tell a story that meant something to him with whatever art he could muster. There are some points in my early professional career, Temujin included, where we would hit roadblocks. And some of the time I was like, no, I'm not going to take no for an answer. I'm going to keep going. And there were some points where I would make mistakes and I would be like, why am I here? And it was it's not useful to think that way. But past a certain point, things are going to get hard. And it's a cliche, but what you do when the times get tough will really define what the next couple of years is going to look like for you. The point being, we got here through being told no and then saying no back. And we're going to do it anyway. Thanks for listening to Foolish Careers. If you enjoyed this episode, there's more where that came from. Just subscribe to the Foolish Careers newsletter or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. We'll send updates when a new interview comes out featuring a storyteller, artist, or creative entrepreneur in Asia who ignored the advice to get a more sensible career. So join us at foolishcareers.asia. We look forward to hearing from you.